It is with great um, thanksgiving uh, that uh, we have been able, at least in my heart, and I trust in yours, that we've been able these uh, past few months uh, to be speaking about the gentle and lowly heart of Christ as it is reflected not only in the New Testament and the Gospels, but in the Old Testament as well. It is a wonderful thing, an important thing, and I guess if you, if, in a sense, if you wanted to summarize this whole series, it would be something like this. Jesus' heart is always better than we, than we expect. Jesus' heart is always better than we think. In our fallen condition, we often miss it. And I think Hosea probably explains this, peels it back, unfolds it for us as as well as anyone possibly could. Hosea is describing the long-suffering compassion of God. And as he considers his children, he grows warm and tender. As he considers his people's weakness, he grows warm and tender and makes this statement, I'll not destroy her, even because of her rebellion, I won't destroy her. And then this is what, this is what summarizes as well as any, anything could, the fact that God is one way and we are another way. When he says this, after all, I won't destroy her, after all, I am God. And not a man. I will not treat them the way a man would. I've made promises. Even God the Son would die for my people. God's massively compassionate heart. We are made right with God, of course, based on what Jesus did for us and not what we do for him. That is the gospel message, that it is his performance, his obedience to the law that saves us and not our obedience. And that really is one, one of the major themes of the letter uh, to Galatians. We'll see in in chapter 2, verse 16, you may turn with me to that passage. But I want you to notice how Paul emphasizes, states in three different ways in one verse, that we are saved not by our works, but by Jesus' performance for us, received by faith. Look look with me at that verse. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed into Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. One theme throughout the letter to the Galatians. But it's not the only theme. And we see as we glance ahead of our text in chapter 3 that Paul is agitated. Uh, He is disturbed. He is in fact indignant. And he says, you foolish, you foolish Galatians, you've lost sight of the grace that saves you and depend on your your law keeping to keep you. You've trusted in Christ to save and you've been depending on your own works, your own efforts to keep you saved. You're being duped. 
The world has watched this, this last week or so uh, a young woman who has been called GOAT, greatest of all time, that's not a pejorative term, uh, uh, Simone Biles, as she has stepped away from uh, many of her, if not all of the routines that she was to perform uh, in the present Olympics in Tokyo. And she withdrew because, as she described, there's something called a, a, a gymnast will experience from time to time something called a twisty, a twisty. And it's something, something like this, that your mind and body are in some way not in sync. And so you can have a, a, a routine that you have done thousands of times, but your loop your body and mind not in sync, and you, you, instead of doing it instinctually, you have to think your way through it. And you can't think your way through a, a two-and-a-half twist over, over the, the balance beam. You can't do that. The queen of twisting couldn't fathom how to twist. She lost that ease. She lost that instinct. And she was afraid of getting seriously hurt, so she withdrew. Let me suggest that there is something like that in our own lives that we might call spiritual twisties. Paul says, uh, you foolish Galatians, you should know better. You began with the Spirit, but you're living as if He had never appeared. You were in danger. How could you miss this? Warning! Foolish Galatians! Wake up! Remember the two men walking on the road to Emmaus following the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus appears to, the, to them, expounds the scriptures. They, don't, they are slow to grasp that all of the Old Testament was looking forward to the coming of Jesus. There he was, the risen Messiah, right in their midst, and they were missing the whole thing, and he said, You are foolish! Slow to believe! So look with me at Galatians 3, verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Or as the NIV puts it, are you trying now to reach your goal, to reach the finish line, to reach the goal of sanctification by human effort? Starting with the Spirit, you're now working out of the resources of the flesh. On your own, that's, that's the, the core of what we might call spiritual twisties. Lost sight of Jesus and living in our own resources. Listen, grace is the door, but it's also the path. Grace is how you get in, but it is also how you get on. Our theme this morning, live as a dead, alive person loved by Jesus. Live as a dead, alive person loved by Jesus. A little bit hard to understand here. You're dead, but you're alive. And this is who you are. One who may say, I am dead, but now alive. I've been crucified. There was a death there. On Calvary, I've been crucified, I was crucified with Christ. For through the law, verse 19, I died to the law, 
so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. One died in the place of many. Lawbreakers, you see, deserve death, but Christ's death in our place, the substitutionary atonement, satisfies that penalty. One dies in your place. But hear this. You were there. You were there. You were with him. You were in him. Your sins were atoned for. You died to the law, to its punishment. So the law cannot condemn you anymore. It cannot rule your conscience. You've been crucified with Christ. Then he says, I no longer live. The old you, the one that was identified, that was in Adam, is no longer alive. The one that was under the curse of Adam. You are now God's favored child. No longer view yourself then apart from Christ. No longer view yourself as one in Adam and apart from Christ, but always now in Christ. I want to read an extended quote from Martin Luther to to press through this as we seek to to understand some of the implications of being uh, dead to sin and alive to Christ and in Christ. Christ and my conscience must become one body. Let's just stop there for a minute. Christ and my conscience must become one body So nothing remains in my sight but Christ crucified and raised from the dead. The only thing in my field of vision, it's not myself, it's not my performance, it is Christ crucified and raised and I'm with him. But if I see myself only and set Christ aside, I'm gone, Luther says. You are so entirely joined to Christ that he and you are made one person. Two implications for this. So you might boldly say, I am now one with Christ. His righteousness, his victory, his life are mine. I am one with Christ. And this is almost more jarring. And Christ may say, I am that sinner. His sins and his death are mine because he is united and joined to me and I to him. You are dead, but alive. You are in Christ. That is who you are. You are also alive in the Spirit. Christ is in you. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I'm a new creation. So your deepest and truest identity is Christ in you. What you might say is most true of you is Christ in you. Not your own performance. Not your own failures. Or if you're the inclination to count your successes, not your own successes. His life, his righteousness is who you are. Nine times in these uh, in in this short section, the word I and me is used. I am not my own. I belong to him. 
uh, the real me. And so you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave, yourself, gave himself for you. You live, secondly then, as one Jesus loves. Who you are, you're dead in Christ and alive in him. Who you are, this is how you live. You live as one whom Jesus loves. Now because of the flesh, because of the flesh, this is not quite as easy as you might think it is, or perhaps even how some might make it sound. Life in the flesh um, uh, is a challenge because we're always tempted, back to chapter 3, verse 3, to depend on the flesh. We have a temptation while in this body to depend not on Christ, but upon ourselves. That's, the, that's an inclination of our hearts. Uh, you foolish Galatians, you started off well, but you've gotten off track. You started by the Spirit, and now you're depending on the flesh. So we're losing sight. We, we have a tendency, if I may put it that way, to lose sight of Jesus, and we develop our own particular style of spiritual twisties. We lose our equilibrium. We lose our consciousness of Jesus. We, there is a swirl of inconsistencies in our lives as we lose our orientation. We become fearful people. We become overcome by anxieties. We're easily discouraged. We who've received mercy are sometimes the last to show mercy and give it. This is all due to this, this spiritual twisties that we get. We've lost our orientation. John Newton um, put it this way. Most, the, most of this tendency to live this way, th- these, these uh, inconsistencies are owing to unbelief. And they are vestiges, John Newton's words, vestiges of uh, a legal spirit. That is, depending on our own flesh, depending on human effort. He goes on to say, works righteousness is a subtle thing, and even an unconscious attempt to win God's favor by working for it. An unconscious attempt, sometimes, to earn favor from the Father by working for it. And what makes this whole tendency, this this whole malady, such a problem, such a spiritual twisting, is that we know that we can't do it. And so we live a life of make-believe and a life of deception and deceiving others that we're better than we really are. And that kind of disconnect creates all kinds of spiritual problems uh, in our lives. It is easy for us to say, foolish Galatians, but what about you? It's kind of like bad breath. We can have it and be the last ones to know about it. It's a problem. So let's try to deal with this. Let's try to, to, to work through these worry and, and resentments can ooze from us. But we do not have to stay there. We do not have to stay there. We have uh, fears and anxieties that can be dislodged. We have self-fascination that can be dislodged. And the, and the, the high point of this passage is, is that the spirit... Uh, the, the Spirit who has come and resides in us gives us the felt love of Christ. 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, and that is an absolutely glorious truth. And yet it is the ministry of the Spirit to personalize it, to say that you would even, not just be saved by the love of Christ, and not just have a knowledge of the saving love of Christ, but that you would actually be set free by the saving love of Christ because you know it. This is the testimony of Scripture. God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. The Niagara Falls of the love of God filling our heart by the Holy Spirit. That is something that can be known and experienced and felt. The Spirit also um, gives us power. A certain kind of power, together with all the saints, to grasp something in particular. That is how wide and high and deep and long is the love of Christ. And we'll never get to the bottom of it. We'll never get to the bottom of it. Why is that? To know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the measure of the fullness of God. We're always on a journey there. Holy Spirit, give me a taste of the love of Christ. Give me a taste of the love of Christ. Christ himself has come, not as judge, but as Savior. The end time judgment that everybody knows is coming uh, has for those in Christ already taken place. Amen. It's already taken place. And so the felt love of Christ can bring to us rest and peace and joyful zeal. Words of Heidelberg again, so that we wholeheartedly from now on live for him. A goal then, a goal then in these next few moments is to look at several examples. And I want you to go in two directions with this. I want you to think about your own heart and and think about the the nature of your own, to use our word for the morning, spiritual twisties, where you lose orientation of what is true and live on the basis of that. Be thinking of that in your own heart, but then also be thinking about your responsibility uh, to speak words of encouragement to others. Remember, sanctification is a community effort. You are not on your own. God has surrounded you with brothers and sisters who love Jesus and who love you. And you have the benefit then of growing in holiness and in a pure knowledge of God because of the people around you. So be thinking about how you can encourage those closest to you, even as we look through these a few examples here. And and I want you to think, we may not cover something that really is where you are, so I want you to think of when do you live without the felt love of Christ? Did you hear that question? When do you live without the felt love of Christ? And to you and to all of us, we say again, Holy Spirit, give us a taste of the love of Christ. Well, think first of all, first of all, of the daily anxieties that come into our lives. Now, this is going to be a bit of a, maybe a bit of a surprise to you. The daily anxieties that come into our lives. We may think of uh, those uh, anxieties because we're so helpless and we're so humble. Right? Isn't that why we get anxiety? Oh, poor me. I'm helpless and humble. What can I do? And so we get all anxious. 
But notice how God, the, the message that God prescribes for anxiety. This we see in 1 Peter. Uh, we see uh, that the pride, uh, that, that the anxieties come from pride, not humility. We're working things out on our own. Taking God's place, which is why we're anxious. We're anxious not because we're humble, but because we're proud. So what do you do? What do you do with that anxiety? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Amen. I'm anxious, Lord, because I've been taking improper ownership of things. <laughs> I admit that. You cast all your you take it. You cast your anxieties on Him. And the logic is clear. The Holy Spirit's logic is clear here. Cast your cares, your, anxi- your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He does care for you. The last thing you think in the midst of your anxiety is he cares for you. He died for you in the Lord Jesus. Of course he cares for you. Holy Spirit, give us a taste of the love of Christ. Let's ratchet up those anxieties just a moment and let's call this one fear. We have fear of our future, of what might happen to us, what people might do to us. What do we do with this fear? John chapter, 1 John chapter 4, again, gives an interesting prescription for it. You have a problem with fear... Uh, because you have a fear of judgment. Your little fears are because of the big fear. And so we want to hear and, and trust John's argument. Once again, we're arguing from the, the language of Scripture to deal with our spiritual twisties. John, in chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. So love is perfected in us so we have confidence for the day of judgment. For love to be perfected in us, it is to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that because I am in Christ, I will be, I've been delivered and I will be delivered on that last day. And therefore, and I want you to listen to the conjunctions. Those are connecting words. Listen to the conjunctions in First John or I think it's verse 19. I think it is. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears has not been perfected in love. Our, our fear, then, is reflecting a lack of confidence in the love of God who has saved us through Jesus and will carry us through the judgment. Your fears are rooted in your own efforts to sort of live your own life and, and save yourself in some way or other. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, 
Now, and um, the one who fears has not been perfected. Now, does this mean that, does this mean that you never fear again in this life? I, it, it, again, it doesn't work that way. But what you see as you, as you entrust yourself to the love of God and his work for you, you, you see that while you may be afraid of certain things, you have the courage to get up and walk. It's the courage to do what God calls you to do that is so marked. Perfect love casts out fear. When the big fear has been taken care of at the cross, the thousands of little fears that you have it can evaporate. You can work through them. Third, third thing. Holy Spirit. Let me say again. Holy Spirit. Give us a taste of the love of Christ. The third thing is that that can often get us all twisted up and we live by our own.